Welcome to Alchemy, the home of the open mind. I hope you enjoy the range of eye and ear opening guests that we bring to you on as regular a basis as we can. And I've no doubt you're going to enjoy this episode as much as I. So without further ado, let's get on to the show. Alchemy. 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 My guest this episode is Dr. Jacob Lieberman. Jacob is a pioneer in the fields of light, vision and consciousness and the author of Luminous Life, How the Science of Light Unlocks the Art of Living, Light Medicine of the Future, Take Off Your Glasses and See and Wisdom from an Empty Mind. Originally trained as an optometrist and vision scientist, piercing the heart and mind with timeless principles and common sense wisdom, Jacob, through his work, illuminates the seamless connection between light, vision and consciousness, offering a whole new way of seeing and being. I'm very pleased to welcome him for the first time to Alchemy. Jacob, how are you? Well, first of all, it's wonderful to be with you today, John. And how am I? I'm looking out a big window out to the horizon because I live in Maui, Hawaii, another beautiful place like Ireland. And so I'm, uh, I'm swimming in nature right now. And... Um, so I'm in a wonderful place. Uh, I feel great, and I feel grateful, and just humbled to be alive and to uh, have this opportunity with you today. So I'm very much looking forward to see where this uh, magic journey will take us both. Likewise, and I must say your, your spirit and your vigor is absolutely infectious, so I'm very excited to have this conversation. There's a question, Jacob, that I ask everybody who comes on the show for the first time, and that is, how did you get from where you were to where you are now? Well, there actually was no distance and no journey. You know... They say the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. But as you know, life takes us on a very mysterious, circuitous route that makes us think we're on track part of the time and off track at other times. And then if we're fortunate enough to be graced to be living longer in our lives, just as I recognized this morning, everything was just perfect. Everything actually was a stepping stone that brought us to this particular moment. In terms of how did I get from where I was to where I am, as I spoke with my daughter this morning, I was sharing with her that when I was a young man, um, I used to sing rock and roll, and I thought for sure that's what I wanted to do. Now, before that, I was a competitive athlete, and I thought my thing was going to be to be in the Olympics. And between getting my knees 
injured playing football and my father saying, no, you can't continue to sing. You have to go to college. I shared with my daughter, who's in her mid-40s now, that when I was a kid, you needed to be a doctor, a dentist, or an attorney. Or if you wanted to do public service, you'd study political science. So we all were conditioned to go down certain tracks. But then eventually you realize whether that track is in alignment with your destiny or whether there's something else that you are actually born with, that you know by heart, that you have no choice about, you must, you must go that journey. And so that's what happened to me. <clears throat> so where I am now is actually where I began. I am sharing with the world things that that have touched my life, that have humbled me, that have allowed me to realize how little the mind understands about things that we just know, but we have no idea how we know them. And um, so I'm happy to say that today at almost 73 years of age, I'm exactly the same being that was pictured in my first grade photographs in Havana, Cuba, where I was born. I was in the middle of a classroom of kids all wearing uniforms. Their hands were folded on their desks. They all looked very serious. In the middle of this photo is this little boy with a really big smile, all excited, wearing a Hawaiian shirt. Guess who that was? And here I am, almost 21 years, living on Maui, Hawaii. So it's taken me 73 years to come back to exactly the place where I began. So how I got here, it took me through all kinds of journeys. But the only thing that I can say is, Ah, thank God I'm home. What a fantastic answer. One of the things that you did kind of approach along the way was the subject of optometry. And in, right. indeed, in a professional capacity, you became an optometrist. And that's going to be most pertinent to the chat that we have, obviously, considering we'll be talking about not just life, but light and the specificity of light to life. There is one of the books that you've written. We will talk about your most recent book, Luminous Life, and how the science of light unlocks the art of living. But there's one book which has a very interesting title, and that's Take Off Your Glasses and See. Can you tell me how that has a link to your professional ties to optometry and what that was all about? What was your personal experience that kind of started to paint that picture? Well... Like most people in the vision care field, and I was approaching it from two directions, both as a vision specialist and also as a vision scientist, two areas <clears throat> that I was trained in. And like many people in the vision care field, I wore glasses. 
which is very common as you look around today because few people are born with with eyes that are unable to see and yet most of us end up wearing glasses sometime in our lifetime in fact deteriorating vision is the biggest health epidemic in the world when I went into my initial clinical work while I was still in school in 1971 I was wearing glasses like almost all my classmates and everyone that I saw coming into the clinic that I examined <clears throat> came in with the same complaint they had been given glasses for several years in a row and once again they noticed they couldn't see and they needed stronger glasses I saw this pattern it didn't make sense to me but that's what I saw I went into practice in 1973 and I saw the same thing going on year after year the same person would come in with the same complaint I can't see it could be I can't see it to drive or I can't see the blackboard I can't pass my driver's test or if they were older they'd say you know my arms are not long enough I can't read the newspaper anymore unless I hold it way out I can't see whatever I'm working on and I said what's wrong with this people keep coming in with the same complaint and we keep treating them with the same solution and I said, if, if a problem continues to worsen, <clears throat> the solution we're applying cannot possibly be the right solution. So I started searching for approaches that could prevent vision deterioration. And I wanted to see, is it possible to naturally improve someone's condition so that they either can see better or at least be less dependent upon the crutches that they never take off their face. And so I began experimenting with myself because I knew of no one who had actually done this. I had never read about anyone that had done this. And this was certainly not part of my educational training and I was told it was impossible <clears throat> so I did everything from removing my glasses when I didn't need them like when I was home or eating and so on to doing exercises with my eyes to gradually lessening my prescription I did everything that I could imagine to try to see is there a way of improving my eyesight? And yes, I found that I was able to make small incremental change. But there was a point where I couldn't seem to get beyond. And I didn't know what to do. And I had been introduced to the practice of meditation in 1971 and had begun meditating at that time. So it was something that I did every day for about 20 minutes or so. And so one Sunday I sat down to meditate. I took my glasses off because <clears throat> without them I couldn't see other than the big E on the eye chart. 
took my glasses off. I sat in a chair, closed my eyes, and just began breathing and focusing on my breath as I did every day when I meditated. Somewhere in the process, John, it seemed like I disappeared. My sense of myself breathing seemed to recede into the background. The only thing there was an awareness of was it was almost as if I was sitting somewhere in space and I was experiencing my, myself sitting in a room meditating. Now today people would call that an out-of-body experience. But in 1976, I'd never heard of such a thing that I don't know anyone who had used that term and I had never had an experience like this. <clears throat> so here I am sitting with my eyes closed. And yet in my mind's eye or somewhere within my humanity, I'm aware of myself sitting in a room. And I'm aware of the whole room. And everything in the room looks crystal clear to me now I don't know how I was seeing it because my eyes were closed but everything was clear not only optically clear but there was uh, a sense of quiescence a sense of peace that one has when one has no questions about life when everything is just known, but there's no knower. I don't know how to describe it. The other phenomenon that occurred is whatever was noticing myself sitting in the room, it felt like it was noticing it from everywhere at the same time. In fact, when I came out of this experience... And someone said to me, what was this like? And what came out of my mouth automatically was, it felt as though I had become the sky. Like whatever was Jacob became something that was everywhere at the same time. At some point, my eyes opened. And to my amazement, the room I was sitting in was very clear. I can remember feeling like something was strange because I had never seen so clearly as I remember in that moment. And I thought it was just momentary, but it didn't go away. And so my immediate amazement then became amazement with a little hint of worry, like what's wrong? This is not supposed to happen. Uh, am I having some sort of a blood sugar surge? Is there something wrong with me that this is going on? 
And I sat with that. And then I said, I have to figure out what's going on. And so I got in my car. My license to drive said I had to wear glasses. But I could see clearly. So I folded the glasses and put them on the car seat next to me. I got in my car and I drove about 30 minutes to my office. I could see the license plates. I could see the street signs. I could see the billboards. I mean, everything was like unbelievably clear. I got to my office. I opened up the building because it was Sunday. I sat in my chair 20 feet away from a series of different eye charts, most of which I had never seen before. And I was consistently seeing one line better than 2020, which means my eyesight had improved by 300%. I didn't know what to make of this because I was seeing clearly without straining, squinting, or anything. And so what then came to me is what I learned in school is that as our eyes worsened or weakened, our prescription got stronger. So I thought, I don't know what's happened here. But if my eyesight has really improved, then maybe my prescription has also reduced or changed or something. I didn't know what to make of it. So I did something I had never done before. The instrument that I normally placed in front of my patient's face to examine them and to say, is it better this way or this way? I put in some lenses that made everything blurry so I wouldn't know where I was beginning from. I put it in front of my face and then I started changing the lenses, not realizing I couldn't see what I was doing, but I kept you know, basically putting lenses in there and asking myself, is it better this way or this way? Trying to find subjectively the best prescription for me, just as I did with my patients. I did it for the right eye. I did it for the left eye. And then I did it with both eyes together to try to balance, to make sure one eye and the other was seeing as close as possible to to a balanced way. When I finished, I came out from behind the instrument thinking that maybe the instrument will indicate no prescription at all or a very mild prescription because how else could this occur? But to my amazement, the prescription in the machine was almost identical to the prescription in my eyeglasses. And then... I was really stumped. How could my eyesight have improved by 300% without any changes to my eyes? And that I didn't know what to make of. And then at a certain point after that experience, something stirred inside of me because I realized that in some way, Something had brought me to a state of clarity, and that state didn't seem to be related to my physical eyes. 
And all I could imagine is maybe the eyes are the windows where light comes in. But maybe the seeing is occurring in an entirely different place. And so I spent the next four years doing a, a, a real-time experiment on myself, which I called an experiment on the workings of my mind. I was trying to determine if there was something that I tapped into in this nondescript something that we called our mind that had allowed me to all of a sudden see clearly. Well, the only thing that I discovered from this experiment was that if I was able to imagine that the seeing mechanism inside of us was not in the eye and was not in the brain, but somewhere outside the physical body, something interesting occurred. And so I used to experiment and imagine that I was seeing from a place slightly behind and above my head, like there was some witness or something back there. And when I imagined myself seeing from back there, my eyes seemed to clear up in a very interesting way. It was almost like the field of perception expanded horizontally, vertically, and on the z-axis, almost like a wide-angle zoom lens. Something opened up. And had this experience happened for just a couple of minutes, I would have said it was miraculous. But I'm now, I'll be 73 in November. And, and it's now been 44 years since that experience. And I have never worn glasses for reading or distance since that day. I still see clearly to pass all my driver's tests, all my vision examinations. None of my eye doctors, and I have two of them, can understand what's happening because I used to be nearsighted with a significant amount of astigmatism. Now I am equally farsighted with even more astigmatism. So reading should be very difficult and seeing at distance should be difficult. But they're not. So this instantaneous change that occurred 44 years ago has now remained for 44 years without doing anything. It occurred by itself. It remains by itself. <clears throat> so the experience brought me to a fascinating place. It brought me to realize that the source of our seeing, or maybe another way of expressing that, who we are, is something other than the physical body. And I'm suggesting that it is possibly something other than what we call mind. It's something beyond body and beyond mind.
what I came to realize from this experience is that this essence of who we are or this place from where the source of seeing occurs is a place where problems do not exist. It's not a place that that lives on duality of good and bad and right and wrong and black and white. It's a place that is endowed uh, with no point of view. All it is is a field of awareness that notices, but it notices without a noticer. And if we are graced enough to slip into this space, sometimes instantaneous changes can occur that we do not understand how, and then they can remain. So that experience brought me to a new way of seeing and a new way of being and has allowed me to realize that much of the difficulty that we as humans experience and we all have certain difficulties it's part and parcel of the experience of living but a good amount of the difficulty is um, because we have no idea who we are. Um, we believe ourselves to be a physical being with a point of view that occurs through something that we is undescribable that we call our mind. And then our life becomes uh, a dynamic painting on a canvas that is a reflection of what we believe. The interesting thing about that is that the word belief means the opposite of truth. Belief is just a thought, a theory, a concept, a hypothesis. In other words, it's something that's continually changing. As the Sufis say, life is a bridge, don't build a house on it. If you try to build your life on a cloud... Sooner or later, you'll fall through. We've been conditioned to build our lives on what we believe. But that experience many years ago, and now 44 years in which to to develop, to mature, I realized that my real search is for truth beyond opinion. 
And maybe this is why in the Bible, Jesus is quoted as saying, the truth shall set you free. That there's something about truth that is curative, that can profoundly transform our lives in ways we will never be able to explain. So those are that was one of the experiences. I've had many, many, but that was one of the experiences that was transformational because it was a direct experience. And what I mean by that is that there was an awareness of truth that was undeniable. That I, you know, I don't know how to say, but I hope you and your listeners can hear. That's what a direct experience is, and it's life-transforming, and it causes your the neurons and makeup of the of the brain to literally reconfigure itself for this epiphany this aha moment that changes everything moving forward that's what's possible from an instance of truth it's called a paradigm shift Literally, everything changes. It's like you go to sleep on one side of the bed, you wake up on the other, but you have no idea how you got there. And that experience, along with others, led me out of the vision care field in the mid-80s because I realized that things had come to me how I do not know, that I had to share with the world. Even though I may not be able to explain them, even though people would question and say, oh, that's just ridiculous, I had to do it. And it's not an easy road when you're out there by yourself. You you get a lot of tomatoes thrown at you. <laughs> yeah. You know, and now, you know, when my first book, Light Medicine of the Future, came out in January 91, I can't tell you of the criticism that I went through, especially from the scientific community. Most everything that I predicted and spoke about in that book has now been scientifically validated. Some of it is still being tested. So having these kinds of experiences are the most exciting thing that can happen in a lifetime and also the loneliest things that can happen in a lifetime because you don't have a lot of people to speak with about it. But occasionally, you know, a John Gibbons comes into your life and says, gee, I have a couple questions for you. And um, and then we get to to see what comes forth from that. 
Well, I'm quite struck as you're speaking, Jacob, about a number of different things, but the kind of overarching vibratory message that I'm receiving from you is quite a profound one. And that is that we're, we're beings of nature and there's no lie in nature. So when you speak about truth and how profoundly truth can affect us and affect a paradigm change within us and then have a knock-on effect of changing our kind of worldview and everything around us. That really, really resonates strongly with me and it brings us to other elements of nature because I'm firmly of the opinion and it is just an opinion, but again, there is the ring of truth is there for me on some sort of level, that we're part of nature, that we're not separate from it in the way we're conditioned to believe in a lot of cases as we grow up. And that would bring us in line with, say, for example, the plant kingdom. There have been some amazing discoveries recently and maybe in the last couple of decades regarding plant consciousness and that side of things. But to take it to a very base level and to bring things into the realm of light, we all know that plants will face the sun, for example, and that's essential for them regarding optimal development. Whereas as humans, we kind of do the opposite. We, we have so much artificial light around us all the time. We don't really embrace natural light in the way that we should, which natural light being the truth in this case. And to come back to the phrase, there being no lie in, in nature. How does nature tie in with us as human beings with light maybe as the fulcrum around which we work and develop or how we should, which perhaps we're not doing in the way that we, we are meant to do as natural beings? You know, we're still in the midst of this pandemic. And this pandemic has forced a pause to occur in the world. That all of us have been, have find ourselves in. All of a sudden, the noise of the world subsides dramatically. We get to experience silence, which people say is golden, and we get to experience the golden aspect of it. We notice that the atmosphere is clearer and cleaner. The oceans are clear. We notice the birds are singing louder than we can remember. We experience the power of silence. We simultaneously experience a lot of people getting ill, a lot of people dying, a lot of concern, a lot of stress economically. One of the most profound aspects of this pandemic, which comes back to your beautiful question, is it allows us to directly experience the difference between natural and normal, which is your question. And living in a beautiful place like Hawaii which is surrounded by natural beauty, I was profoundly struck by the direct observation that more was happening to impact the quality of our environment through this pause 
than all the things together that humans have attempted to do to impact climate change. In other words, doing nothing at all had a much more powerful impact than every than all of our doing in the same way as this shift in my vision occurred without doing anything, intending anything, or doing anything to maintain it. Why do I mention this? That's the power of nature. In nature, everything occurs effortlessly. In normal, everything we think occurs efforting, work, intention, manifestation, thinking ahead, worrying, on and on and on. So those living a normal life, many of them experience themselves becoming successful at everything except life itself. When being successful at life is the only thing that really matters in terms of supporting what we're all looking for, health and happiness. So now let's come back to the sun. Why is nature so important? Why is sun, the sun and sunlight so important? When we went to school, one of the first things we learned in science class is that we live in a place called the solar system which is the sun and a series of planets orbiting around it. No one ever told us that solar system means that we are of or derived from light. That's profound. Mm -hmm. That essentially means that all living things, including the earth, the planets, and everything else, is something that is materialized light. Now, we were never told that from that term, but yet quantum physicists, years later, discovered that all matter is frozen light, that at the subtlest level, the energy, the womb of creation, if you will, is the energy that we call light. Everything seems to come from that. You mentioned plant. Plants are materialized light. When an animal eats a plant, it is just eating materialized light. And it gets its nutrition that way. So, that's from a scientific perspective. But not everyone's a scientist. Some people, uh, their way of viewing life is through the eyes of, let's say, religion, because we all learned and were taught the Bible. Well, the Bible says that the creative force is something called God. Just like the physicists say, 
the energy from which everything arises is light. Well, then you read the Bible, and the Bible says this creative force called God is omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent. It's all-knowing, all-powerful, and everywhere at the same time. Well, and then it goes on to say that God is light. And if you read quantum physics, you begin to realize that the light that the physicists describe, even though they use different terms, behaves as if it is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. And you say, oh my God, religion and science is saying the same thing in a totally different language. So then you look at spiritual texts going back thousands of years and they speak of this source which they call consciousness, which they say is synonymous with light, the light of consciousness. So <clears throat> when you look at nature, when you look at our nature, when you look at all of the individuals that have profoundly impacted humanity, whether they be Jesus or Moses or Martin Luther King or Ramana Maharshi or the Buddha or Gandhi, when you look at the photo, the, the images of these individuals, especially the, the ones from long time ago, they're all pictured with halos and a glow around them. Mm. And we say, oh, they were enlightened or illumined, which is another way of saying they awoke to the truth. And the reason they're pictured with light is not because the artist decided to just depict them in some artistic way. They're pictured with light because they were bright. They're br they literally were holographic focal points of the sun. They gave off light wherever they went. And that light was contagious. So... Nature is an expression, a real-time expression of that. And the beauty of nature, when we, when we realize that we are nature, is it's contagious for us. And we realize that we're just like trees, different kinds of trees. And just like an apple tree is here, <clears throat> is designed to create apples, each human being's nature is the design of what they are here to bring forth in life, their purpose for being, if you will. And so just as an apple tree doesn't have to make any choices or decisions – the light guides its growth. The light literally nourishes it along with the part of the tree you never see called its roots, its invisible roots. 
the tree grows all by itself without having to exercise or do anything. And that is our own nature. Essentially, our nature determines our purpose for being. Light guides our growth and development in the same way it does a plant. Every function of the body is light dependent. Our intuition is literally our awareness of the invisible signals of light that each one of our cells detect and respond to, which guides our growth and development. And now I'm talking of hard science. Mm -hmm. So this idea of having to make choices and having to make decisions, it's really what we call worrying. It's really the source of most of the stress in the world. There are stresses that are natural. You know, when we're hungry, there's a natural something that occurs that's stressful. When you encounter something new, whether you're an ant, an elephant, a dinosaur, or a human, you experience your version of trepidation and worry because all of life is the result of an, of an invisible field of energy called awareness or consciousness. So I hope in some way I've responded to your question um, about how nature can reflect to us our own nature um, and remind us that we're human beings, not human doings. Well, you've absolutely nailed it for me. And to surmise, and by all means correct me if I've misinterpreted it, it sounds like light is a form of physical fuel or the only form of both physical fuel and a fuel for our consciousness. Light is not only the physical fuel for life, all life is not only dependent upon but could not live or exist at all without light. So yes, it is the physical fuel for everything to function. It is also the information that um, supports humanity's journey towards living in a way that is congruent and coherent with all that is. And congruent and coherence are other words for harmony. Mm. And then there's a third piece. It's not just the fuel. It is the underlying vibrational underpinnings of the material reality we call life. 
there is an invisible aspect of all that exists. You know, there was a time in science where the only thing that was existed was what you could pick up with your five senses. If you couldn't see it, hear it, smell it, taste it, or touch it, it didn't exist. And in fact, if you experience something that you couldn't see, hear, smell, taste, or touch, and it had something to do with your body, they said, oh, that's just psychosomatic. In other words, they just made it up in their head. It had... It had no reality in and of itself. But then science started looking at matter under a microscope and started realizing that if you kept magnifying what you were looking at, pretty soon you started seeing what the material was actually made of. And it was made of smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller particles that you couldn't see. And then if you kept magnifying and magnifying and magnifying, what you started seeing is that these particles were actually actually emerged from formless states of possibility. They, they literally emerged from nothingness. And so science begins to now tell us that there are no pictures, no sounds, no forms, no smells, no tastes in the world. Everything we experience has to do with our perceptual mechanisms in response to a quantum soup, a field of energy that through this magic of something called consciousness, which none of us understand, we experience reality as something that you can see and feel and touch and so on. But all of this is 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 involved in every field of science because in medicine, for instance, and in science, if you want to know if something really works, you compare it to a placebo control. You compare the real drug to what they used to call a sugar pill, an in inert substance. Something that is actually nothing. What's really profound is we discover that nothing is unbelievably powerful. Mm. That placebos, even though we can't describe what the nothing is, has the same impact as what we say is the real thing. And what does that tell us? It tells us that the material substance or the energy from which a material substance emerges 
have the same efficacy. That's incredibly powerful. Incredibly powerful. It's about the most powerful thing I could ever think of. It means that the, the, the physicality of a substance or our own physical being is far from the most important thing. And we do, I mean, we tend to grow up in a five sense reality or the perception of a five sense reality. And that's what we're taught in school as we grow up as children. And it couldn't be further from the truth. One of the interesting things about the work that you've done is so much of it has been proven by science and so many people are are not willing to accept things unless there is some sort of scientific method behind it and that's the validation that a lot of people need but you have been able to discern truth for the past whatever four decades and beyond and that has since been validated by science which shows that there is a link between god or the non-physical scientific method and science itself, they, they are essentially one and the same, and there is a link. There, there isn't really a separation, is there, if we get a little bit esoteric about it? You know, just as a placebo is as potent as what we say is the real thing, and as I just said, what that demonstrates for us is a material substance or the energy from where the material substance emerges – have essentially the same value. Now let's talk about, let's relate that to truth. We believe that science provides us truth. Science provides us theories. Mm -hmm. The reason theories are continually changing is because a theory is not truth. A theory is just as much as we can see in the moment. So the, the scientist seeks truth through the scientific method, through research, through looking through a microscope, through looking through a telescope. The mystic is a little different type of scientist. They are also seeking for the ground of reality. They are also looking for truth. But their truth comes in the form of a direct experience. Something that they absolutely know but cannot prove. They cannot prove because the proof is the direct experience. I cannot convey to someone what God is if they have not experienced godliness. Mm -hmm. And if they have, there's nothing I can add to the conversation. Before we know something, we c anything that we hear will not make any sense. After we know it, there's no need to hear it any longer. As I've often said, reading only confirms what you already know. We read a book a few times and each time we say, God, I don't remember reading that before. And <clears throat> so there is 
there's so much importance um, in what we're speaking about because it's just common sense. And we all knew this. You know, when I went to school, and if somebody really knew something, the teacher would say, ah, Johnny knows that by heart. Hmm. Now, as a kid, I thought that meant Johnny had memorized it. But that's not what the teacher meant. It meant that Johnny knew that in some way we could not explain. And when this when something comes to us in that way in our life, which is the way great discoveries come to us, we do not think them up. They come to us free of charge. Then we become aware of them and that part of the mind that we call ego says, I discovered it. <laughs> yeah. I'm the source of that. But it doesn't come from us. It comes to us free of charge, which is, by the way, the way everything comes to us, just like it comes to the plant. Mm. When we begin to notice that and we begin to realize that as ultimate truth, then we begin living without a net. Then we forget about thinking ahead. Then we stop life being an internal rehearsal of what we're going to say when we get there. We stop planning. And then we notice this thing that we call genius. <clears throat> you know, we've always attributed the word genius to somebody that we say is incredibly smart and has a high IQ. Yeah. And we compare them to, you know, Einstein or someone like that. But ge genius means your guiding spirit. That's the, the real original definition of genius is a guiding spirit. We all have a guiding spirit. And your guiding spirit and my guiding spirit and your mom Sonia's guiding spirit and the guiding spirit of all the people listening to this conversation is the same guiding spirit. And that guiding spirit is a field of awareness that sees everything knows everything and is everywhere all the time and that field of awareness has no point of view. It doesn't, the only thing that it does, which it does effortlessly, its entire purpose is just to notice. And that field of noticing, which people call the witness, <clears throat> is something that every human being is aware of. 
all of us experience what we call the environment or the external world. And we think that happens with our eyes or with our brains or with some nondescript thing that we call the mind. Then we begin to realize that everything we notice is sort of um, impacted by the filters that we call our beliefs. And so we realize that what we notice is a reflection of what we think we're going to see. So they say, you know, that your belief alters what you experience. But if we have a moment of awakening, we realize something. The reason we are all aware of not only the external world, but even more importantly, the internal world, which is the birthplace of that external world, all of us know when the mind is chattering. All of us are aware when worry is going on. All of us know when there's an internal rehearsal going on or when we find ourselves talking to ourselves. All of us are aware of that. And the reason we are is that because all of us are not the mind, are not the brain, all of us are the observer, the witness, the noticer of all that is. We are the ones noticing the activity of the mind. We are not the mind itself. And so th what we do all of our lives is say, oh, this – these are mind beliefs. This is what I think. I can change my mind. I don't mind it. We identify ourselves, our essence, with the way that we have been conditioned and our parents were conditioned and their parents were conditioned for millions of years. The worrying, the beliefs and so on. That's the result of millions of years of conditioning. That is not who we are. Any more than Pavlov's dogs, who were conditioned to salivate when a bell rang, that's just a conditioned response. Our behavior is a conditioned response. We are not the behavior and we are not the conditioned response, and we are not the conditioning. We are the nondescript field of awareness with no point of view that is noticing what occurs in the external world <clears throat> and the internal world that we call the mind or thinking. And so this nondescript witness that you are aware of and that I am aware of and that everyone is aware of is that little thing the Bible says when it says God created humanity in God's image.
we're all a focal point of that divinity, of that godliness, of whatever you wish to call it. That's our essence. That's the place that sees and notices. That is who we are. And that discovery is what sets us free. So would it be fair to say then, Jacob, that true wisdom is the ability to embrace nothing or no thing? True wisdom, it's very difficult to say what cannot be said. And words are a very poor substitute for what is essential. So when we say true wisdom is the ability to embrace no thing, it means that wisdom is our ability to do something, Mm -hmm. to embrace something else. The actual, you see, when there is a realization that our essence is that place of no point of view, it means that our essence is no thing. And there's no wisdom of it. There's no awareness of wisdom The best example I can give you is when we speak of life, we don't realize that we are life. We think we're looking at life because that's the way we've been trained. Life is out there. We're not the environment. The environment is out there. We're not God. God is out there. So we think we're a drop of ocean, a drop of water, and then there's this other thing which is the ocean. When the drop of water falls into the ocean, there is no longer a drop of water. There is no one who has wisdom. There is no one who is enlightened or awakened. There's just life living itself. We cease to disappear to exist as an individual. There just is the movement of life. A person who has been graced by this discovery does not see themselves as different or awakened or enlightened or anything. They just, they're just another person. They live and breathe humility. They don't see themselves as someone special and they do not see others as being less than or more than. As I say, relationships only work if everyone is the same height. And so the awakened begins to see all of life in the same way. It reminds me almost of the opposite of Descartes' phrase, cogito ergo sum, 
I think, therefore I am. To me, what you're saying is not about thinking, and thinking doesn't validate your existence, but it's more like just be. Right, right. That in itself is very powerful and resonates. I'm using that term a lot as, as we chat. Resonance, but there is a resonance to what you're saying because as somebody who is creative and I create music, amongst other things, I can totally speak to the idea of not being the person who has created that music. I will sometimes listen back to a song that I've made or whatever, and I think I barely remember making that. I don't remember the process. I don't know where it came from. I was just in the zone. I was just being, if you like. And the music came from somewhere else. And we hear that all the time with people who are creative. We hear it with uh, people who play sport, people who do whatever it is that they like to do. It comes from somewhere else. We're not consciously doing what we do when we're at the height of it. It's just happening. We're almost the conduit for whatever is out in the ether, that energy, that vibration, God, whatever term people want to put on it. We're just being. You're, you couldn't have said it more beautifully. I often say, I'm not the creator of the letter. I'm just one of the individuals delivering the mail. Hmm. And that is... That's it. That's absolutely it. You know, we are just a vehicle. We're not living life. Life is living us. This is why in Luminous Life, I say uh, life is looking for us. And the way it comes to us is Light catches our eye, causing a reflexive movement toward whatever it is that that grabbed our attention because that is the next step of our existence. There's nothing to think about, nothing to decide. You're automatically taken there. I mean – And, you know, you've used the word resonance a lot. And that's incredibly powerful. You know, if if you were in one room in a house and I was in the other and you had a tuning fork for a certain note like a middle C and In the other room, I had an identical tuning fork. If I gently tapped my tuning fork with a mallet, even though you couldn't hear me tapping the tuning fork, if when my tuning fork started to vibrate, so would yours. Both of them start to vibrate. As if they're actually one tuning fork. Yeah. Now, something very magical occurred today. First of all, something very magical occurred a few weeks ago. Something guided you to reach out to my office about the possibility of an interview. Mm -hmm. The moment the request came... 
the immediate thing that came to me was yes. It was automatic. There was nothing to think about. I And I get many requests for interviews. But this one was yes. So the response occurred. Your mother, Sonia, same name as my mother, without knowing that this was occurring on your end, sees something in a local newspaper <clears throat> that has to do with my book and suggests to you that you might want to look at that and then speak to me. Wow, how is that occurring? Yeah, it's amazing. Three tuning forks. Then there's the writer of the article, four tuning forks. Yeah. And, th and then it goes on and on, but we don't even see that, you see? And then... This resonance is occurring <clears throat> and sometime about an hour and 20 minutes ago, we, you contact me via Skype and the moment we hear each other's voice, something inside each of us says, oh, thank God I'm home. It's so true. We have, it's so true. We have no idea how we got here. We didn't do anything. T we just followed something that guided us. And then you say to me what you probably have said hundreds of times to other people. Gee, would you like certain questions or something like that? And of course, I give you what you already know. Yeah. <laughs> which, which is neither one of us wants a map. We have been magically brought to this moment. Why do we need a GPS? The GPS of the universe has brought us here. And then we start speaking and questions come so that in one moment um, you are being used as the mouth of God and I am being used as the ear of God and then all of a sudden when we're not looking, it changes and then I am being used as the mouth of God. You are being used as the ear of God. And something is changing and the resonance is occurring more and more. <clears throat> and even though you're in Ireland and I'm in Maui, we could not be further apart. And yet something magical occurs and brings us so close together that the drop of water named John Gibbons and the drop of water called Jacob Lieberman drop into an ocean and disappear. And all that exists is this field of energy that is... Um, uh, putting forth its frequency of wellness, its vibration, its whatever it is, of something that perhaps we can call love, mm. which I say is the answer regardless the question. And even though both of us 
may have places in our lives that maybe we were of concern. Oh, maybe there wasn't enough money to buy something or maybe we have a sore back or maybe we're concerned because our friend is ill or maybe there are things relationally going on in our life. And all that was true. And then this moment of resonance, when the two merge together into oneness, all of a sudden is that the reality of problems and solutions disappear. We forget that there were any problems or any concerns. And we're in a state of nothingness and everythingness. We're in a state of knowing without a knower. And we're in a state of meditation but without ever meditating and we become as Gandhi said an expression our life is our message we are the message not because we're doing something <clears throat> but our life is the message and that's you know this experience that we call an interview has become the truth that is the key that sets all of us free. And to be honest, it's about as far from an interview as I could possibly imagine, and I mean that in the best possible way. I think it was Nietzsche who said that man has no ears for that to which experience has given him no access. And right. if I had heard somebody say some of the words that you've said over the past hour and 20 minutes or whatever length of time it is, Without having had this conversation with you, I wouldn't have felt those words. However, as we have spoken and become those drops in the ocean or disappeared into the ocean from the drops that we once were, to me, I've experienced what it is that you're, there's that word again, resonating. I think the analogy of the tuning forks is an incredibly good one because it feels like we are tuning forks. We're separated perhaps by material distance, but in the ether that is all around us, we couldn't possibly be closer than we are right now having this conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and the beauty of it is, <clears throat> is that the experience, the direct experience allows us to realize that we're not any different from anyone. Mm. We are all one. We are all cells of the same something. And we are continually impacting each other through resonance. The reason that spiritual seekers are often looking for a teacher or a guru or someone who has accidentally stepped into somewhere that they couldn't find if they were looking for it is that when they come together without reading, without practicing, without doing anything, the student and teacher both merge into oneness and both experience that which cannot be said. 
And wow. <laughs> Do you know, Jacob, I think that would be a very good place to sign off on this conversation because while we could speak for many, many hours, I think you've just tied everything into a neat little package with a bow on top, however, one that's accessible for anybody to pick up and look inside at any time or even feel what's inside because I think the feeling is more important than seeing despite the fact that we have spent some time talking about light. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's been... Well, I have no words for it. Let's just say that um, I'm deeply moved by whatever this message is that has impacted both of us. It's um, just brought me into a very sweet, grateful, humble space, not different from the space I am in often, but just allows me to realize that we can never be reminded enough. And that uh, whenever love knocks on the door, say, please come on in. <laughs> Absolutely. I couldn't think yeah. of a better message. Well, Jacob... Your work is fascinating. The book that I've read most recently, and very recently indeed, is Luminous Life. How can people get their hands on that or find out more about your work and your message and what it is you do? Um, the book, uh, probably the easiest way to order it is through a local bookstore if they're open or through Amazon. That's, uh, we, we do not sell books uh, but that's the easiest way to get it and probably the least expensive as well. Um, if people want to know a little bit more about um, what is moving and guiding me in my life, they can visit my website, which is jacoblieberman.org, org, and Lieberman is spelled L-I-B as in boy, E-R-M-A-N. They can obviously follow me on on Facebook uh, where we we like to just upload nice things that we think will be valuable for people. And um, the website is nice. There's a lot of uh, small little two and three minute excerpts from talks and interviews that I think people would be touched by. Um, the site is really an offering of goodwill. It's not a marketing site. You know, it's not about selling things. It's just about sharing something that, um, I hope will touch others in the way it's touched me. And that's really it. <clears throat> I have the power. You have the power. We have the power. Jacob Lieberman, it has been profound and enlightening speaking to you today. Thank you so much for your time. I'm very grateful. Thank you, John. I am equally grateful um, for you and for your mother. Please send her my love. And, um, yeah, until we meet again. Alcohol, 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 alcohol. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Alchemy as much as I have. Until the next time, when we meet again in the not-too-distant future, 
I have the power. You have the power. We have the power.
Alchemy. Care. Will. Intelligence. Imagination.